So as Ramey said, um, this morning I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon on Pentecost, on Pentecost. Diagram that sentence, it works. Um, so I, I'm just really thrilled that we get to do this on Pentecost, that we didn't miss this. Uh, but this is Peter's inaugural sermon. This is his first major announcement after the resurrection of Christ. And it's tremendous. There's a lot packed into this sermon. And I'm going to try to touch it all. Um, but if I don't hit your favorite point, I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried. Um, so what we're going to see this morning, the way that Peter's sermon kind of breaks out is what really is happening? And then he says, who did it? And then finally, he answers the question, how? So what's really happening? Who did it and how? You remember last week it ended with uh, the, the uh, disciples flooding into the streets and preaching the, the marvelous works of God, and people heard them in their own tongues. And the response from some people was, how can this be? And other people thought they were drunk because drunk people make a lot of sense when they talk, right? Um, <laughs> I'm like, have you ever been around a drunk person? They don't speak English when they speak. It's some other language. Um, so what Peter's going to do this morning is he's going to take that opportunity to explain to them what's really going on. And it, it is an amazing sermon. I figured that since this was a sermon on a sermon, this would be a good week to kind of start by explaining my theology of the sermon. What are we doing when we're preaching? I think a, 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 a homiletics class, a class that teaches you how to preach, should start by analyzing this sermon. Not that every sermon has to follow this exact outline, but there's a lot going on in this that's helpful. So at the, at the base level, my theology of a sermon, my idea of what a sermon does, is that a sermon is a verbal event between God and his people, mediated by a man. So it's, it's God speaking to his people, mediated by a person. So um, that's kind of the idea that's going on. The... the Work of the sermon is really an interaction between the preacher, the Holy Spirit, the Word, and the congregation. It's this mix as we all come together and, and work on this together. Um, I'm not a meat puppet here with a, God's hand up my back forcing words out of my mouth. But at the same time, if I'm being accurate, I'm preaching God's Word here. So it, it's God's Word to you, God speaking to you. Um, that's why it's a wonderful thing to be in a congregation listening to a sermon together because it really is a communal event. It's a very human event, and it's a very communal event. We all get something from this. We all do this together. And so God is, has established right here from the very beginning of the church's engagement with the world is there's a sermon. And so that's why you should be in church on Sunday. I'm, I'm, I'm literally preaching to the crowd. You know, you guys are in church on Sunday, but this is why you should work to be in church on Sunday because a sermon is God speaking through his person to y'all. And the person receives feedback. The preacher is receiving feedback, the prompting the Holy Spirit. This is what this group needs to hear. There's just this wonderful dynamic going on. So recorded sermons will do in a pinch. We record our sermons. We put them online. They'll do in a pinch. Um, just as eating a Twinkie can sometimes take the edge off your hunger. I would not recommend making a steady diet of Twinkies. There, there's going to be problems eventually. You'll probably survive for a while, but it's not good for you. The same thing is true with being in a live congregation with real people and meeting them and hearing God's word together. That's much more healthy than listening to a recorded sermon. Uh, so if you have to, yeah, do that but otherwise make an effort to get there. So when we look at, at Peter's sermon, did you notice how much scripture is in this guy's sermon? 
He quotes Joel. He quotes Psalms. He's all over the place. It's like every other statement he's, he's basing on the scriptures. So a good quality sermon is going to be rooted in the word. It's going to speak from the word. Um, and one of the things that sometimes comes up is, is it spiritual to prepare for a sermon? Is that really being spiritual if you spend a week studying the text and reading other things and that kind of stuff? Um, can't you just get up and let the Spirit speak through you? Well, who says the Spirit doesn't speak through preparation? You know, I'm, I need to have my brain renewed. I need to have my mind soaked in the Word so that the Spirit works through His Word. And so did Peter prepare for this? Do you remember what he did last time at the beginning, or the second sermon, right? The church gets together and they said, Judas is dead, we're 11, we should be 12. And so Peter goes to the scriptures and begins to say, this is how we should proceed, this is what we should be doing. Peter now quotes more Psalms. I think Peter has not been sitting in that upper room on his hands waiting. I think the church was gathered and, and the word was present with them. So Peter has been preparing Joel 2 comes right off the top of his head. These psalms just pop right out of his head. He prepared. So preparing is something. Um, now, there's sometimes when you prepare, and then there's sometimes when you prepare. When we went to Burma one time, um, I was told, get a 30-minute sermon together, and you'll be preaching at this church. And I was like, excellent. So I got this really nice outline 30-point sermon or whatever it was, and we walked in. They sat us in the front row of the church, and then the congregation came in, and they were all this tall. It was all a bunch of kids. They brought the children from an orphanage. So I took my notes and I set them aside and I went, all right, time for a new sermon. <laughs> so all my preparation I had to set aside. There's preparing and then there's preparing. So um, Peter was prepared, but what he was prepared to do was answer the question that had come before him. I'm sure he couldn't anticipate that. Uh, so prepare, preparation is really part of sermon work. It's, it's part of what you're enjoying. Fortunately, because I love you all, I don't give you everything I've studied. That would be tedious. But I try to say, well, what's the, the text saying to us and what's going on? So that's what I've been preparing this week for. Um, did you notice this sermon is topical? His sermon, he doesn't take one text and exegete one text and say, this is what this is all about. Peter's topic, or Peter's topic is, is really ultimately the power of Jesus Christ, and he pulls it from a couple of different scriptures. So in our church, in this church, for as long as I've been here, which has been 3,000 years, um, we have always had expository preaching where the preacher goes from the word and works through the word. And that's a great thing. But don't just immediately out of hand say, well, topical sermons are no good. Um, they are okay. They can be used well. God can use those as well. Um, I can, as if he, he might not. Um, there are plenty of topical sermons that God uses, just like there are plenty of exegetical sermons that he doesn't. So uh, I just found it interesting that this was actually a topical sermon. Um, it's also very much an evangelistic sermon. Peter is preaching, and he's preaching to a crowd in order to convince them that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was true. So in my theology of sermons, where it's a, a verbal event between God and his people, how does that work when you're doing an evangelistic sermon where this ain't his people yet? Well, I think the, the way that works is uh, Jesus is the shepherd. And in John 10, verses 3 through 5, he says, the sheep hear his voice, the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought up 
out all his own. He goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. So if my theology is right, I'm looking to do an evangelistic sermon with a bunch of people. I don't know their spiritual state. What I'm counting on is God speaking to his people. And so as I preach, I'm, I'm praying, Lord, let your sheep in this crowd hear your voice and come and follow you. So that's why an, an, a sermon could be evangelistic or it could be aimed squarely at the church because we're sheep and we hear his voice and that's the voice we follow. We don't listen to anybody else. The other thing about this sermon is, did you notice how personal it is? In verse 15, he says, these people aren't drunk and he's one of these people. He's addressing this personal issue of you've accused us of being drunk, and I'm telling you, we're not drunk. And then at the end, it says, for we are all witnesses. It's about us. So what Peter preaches, he makes it actually a very personal sermon about himself. So one of the jokes um, with preachers sometimes is when all the illustrations are personal anecdotes about what happened in your life. Um, But what else are you supposed to do? I mean, that's the thing I'm most familiar with is my life. Uh, So personal anecdotes can actually be part of it, Um, applying it in a personal way. uh, One of the best bits of advice I've heard is when the preacher is the hero of every story, be be aware. (laughs) Notice that Peter doesn't say, well, you know, we got this all figured out. Uh, The hero of Peter's sermon is Jesus Christ. And he's just saying, look, we're witnesses and we're not drunk witnesses. That's all I'm saying about me. So um, that's kind of the, the theology, I think, of how, what we can gain from Peter's sermon on how to preach sermons, how to listen to sermons, how to, how to pay attention to sermons, is this is God's word being held up to you. And, and part of the reason we have to do this together is because some people have the gift of teaching and preaching and some people do not. And so I would not be able to exercise my gift of preaching and teaching if you weren't here. I have joked in the past where I practiced a sermon and actually converted my dresser and uh, it was seeking baptism that afternoon. That doesn't work. Inanimate objects don't become Christians. My dog, while he loves to sit and watch, he doesn't really get converted. I've never baptized him yet. Hosed him down, but never baptized him. So that's something that we need together is you need me and I need you or our gifts don't work. So that's why we have sermons. That's why we have church. That's why we get together not only on Sunday, but throughout the week, is because we need each other. God has equipped us for these things. So with that idea in mind, let's take a look at what Peter has to say. Now, you remember last week, as I said, the crowd heard these people speaking in in tongues that they shouldn't know because they're Galileans, and their response is they must be drunk. That's the only explanation for what's going on. Well, Peter picks it up and he says, uh, it says, Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice. Now, Last week I said it wasn't just the 12 that were preaching, that it was the disciples. And last we heard there were 120 in that room together. So what does it mean when it starts out with Peter standing with the 11, lifted up his voice? I think what it's getting at there is it's not the 11, it's Peter plus the 11. So it's the 12 apostles, which we just replaced one the other week. The 12 apostles. What the 12 apostles represent here is the authority of Jesus Christ. He has commissioned them. He has sent them as apostles. They are sent ones. And so when Peter stands with the 11, even though the other disciples are there, what Peter is doing is he's saying, he's showing, I'm standing with these men. We are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And we're speaking with authority on this. There is an authority to what we're saying. And so that's what the, the uh, speaking with the 11 have to, has to do with this, is it's showing that there is some authority to this. The elders will take my kneecaps off if I mess up a sermon really bad. They will correct me on that because I'm not the only one standing up here. Our elders are standing here with me and, and reviewing what I say and, and correcting me if I get out of line, like my geographical heresy a couple of weeks ago, or my chronological heresy a couple of weeks ago. I said a Sabbath journey was a week, it's only a day. Boy, they were there. They were there to correct me. And I thank God for that. So that's what Peter is doing. Is he's, not, he's saying it's not just me and my opinion. It's this group who were with Jesus from the very beginning. It's our message to you. So he stands up and he addresses the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let it be known to you. Let it be known to you. He's speaking with authority. There's no, no equivocation here. There's no, well, you know, it might be this or it might be that. Let it be known to you. This is the fact. This is what's happened. And he says, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day, only nine o'clock in the morning. Did you ever notice people only get drunk at night? Well, that's not true. There's some people who get drunk during the day, but most people get drunk at night. Why is that? I, I haven't a clue. It's not in the text, so I'm not going to speak authoritatively on it. But Peter's apologetic is it's only nine o'clock in the morning. We're not, getting, we're not drunk. We haven't started drinking yet. Um, so that's his, his defense, and he says, that's not true. Let me show you what is true. It's not alcohol. It's something even more powerful, something much more glorious. He says, but this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. And he picks up Joel chapter 2, and he begins to unpack what that means. In the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, on everyone. And then he goes through this list of different kinds of people who will receive his spirit. And nobody's excluded. From the lowest, the, the servants, all the way up. They will all receive this. The, the young men who are not quite as wise, the old men who are wise, they will receive this. God's promise through the prophet Joel that he will pour his spirit out on all of his people. And as we said last week, when we considered the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, it's not like the Holy Spirit wasn't around until this point. But the Holy Spirit came upon certain people in the Old Covenant to do certain things. The blessing to David was that the Holy Spirit rested on him and never departed from him. But for Saul, the Holy Spirit came upon him and went away. And so that terrified David. He, he, in one of the Psalms, he says, don't take your spirit from me. That, that was something he didn't want to happen. Um, prophets wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there were people in the Old Covenant who the Spirit would come upon, but there was no guarantee that the Spirit was upon everybody in that same way. Joel here is telling us that's going to end. The days are coming when it shall be. And, and what Peter says is, this is what's happening right before your eyes. How thrilling to stand there and watch Joel's prophecy be fulfilled, to say he's pouring out his Spirit. Now, I would have been quite content if, if Peter just stopped right there. He could just stop quoting Joel because that made his point, right? But he goes on and he says, um, and I will show wonders in the heavens and signs in the earth below and fire and blood and vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Why did he bring that up? Peter never saw that in his entire life. He died before the fall of Jerusalem. So if that's the fall of Jerusalem, he didn't even see that. Why did he bring that up? It doesn't happen. 
I think the reason that he brings it up is twofold. First of all, that early church expected a fairly immediate fulfillment of those promises, that the day of the Lord was imminent. It was going to come at any second. So Peter didn't have any problem preaching that because he probably believed that's coming in his day. And I would say the same thing. I, I, I could see this happening within our day. God could bring this about. That's one of the things is we don't know the day or the hour. So when we get to a text like that, we shouldn't shy away from it and go, well, maybe or maybe not. No, we know for a fact that's coming. What we don't know is when. So that's why Peter brings it up. The second reason that he brings it up is it is a live, imminent threat to the people who are not in Christ is that the day of the Lord is going to fall upon them. And it contains the tremendous promise, verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here's what's going on. There is a day coming when God's wrath will be poured out. He has poured his spirit upon his people. For the rest of the people, what awaits them is a day of judgment, a day of wrath. And the good news is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be spared from that. So that's what Peter is doing with, with these people. Is he's, he's looking to them and he's saying, let me explain to you what's really going on. What's really going on is you're seeing prophecy fulfilled, and I'm extending you the offer of missing the day of the Lord, not falling into the judgment that, that's coming. So be aware of that. Um, so that, I think that's why he continues on with that, is, is that is part of the message. And so we can hope in the first half the promise of the Spirit, but we can't ever distance away from the reality of the coming day of the Lord. It's part of our gospel. If our gospel is just God loves you and wants wonderful things for you, there's, you're missing half the equation, which is, and there's a day coming. So that, that's part of what Peter is doing. But he doesn't leave it with, oh, you're all going to hell anyway. He extends to them, all who call on the Lord will be saved. And, and the implication is, so call on the Lord. And let me explain to you who he is. So that's the first part is this beautiful picture of the spirit being poured out on God's people, on all of God's people. Um, and, and as I said previously, that wasn't something brand new to the new covenant. That was a hope in the old covenant. So, for example, in, um, in Numbers, um, Moses calls the elders of the people out, 70 elders from the tribes of Israel. He calls them out and they go outside the camp and the spirit comes upon them and they begin to prophesy. And that's fairly miraculous. That's pretty amazing that they would be standing there with Moses and they would start prophesying. The really amazing part was two of the guys didn't come. They're still in the camp. And the Spirit fell on them in the camp and they start prophesying. And so the word gets back to Joshua and Joshua goes to Moses and says, hey, Moses, make them stop. Listen to Moses' response in verse 29. Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. So there was the hope, even back in the Mosaic Covenant, that this would happen. There was the promise in the, in the prophecy of Joel that this would happen. Jesus recently talked about the promise of the Father coming. There was that hope that it would happen. And so now it's happened. So who did this? Was this just spontaneous? Peter's not going to let him off the hook with, well, God just moves in mysterious ways. He's got more to say. 
So he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord, the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I may not, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart will be glad and my tongue rejoice. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon his soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So who did this? Men of Israel. It was the Jesus Christ whom you killed. He did this. It, it's a pointing to who Jesus is. He came to you with signs and wonders. He came to you attesting to God's faithfulness and his covenant. He came to you promising all of these blessings. And what did you do, men of Israel? You nailed him to a cross. That was your response to the Holy One coming and standing among you. But the best news is you didn't win. You couldn't win. I love that statement. It was impossible for death to hold him. It was impossible. It couldn't happen. So why was it that death could not hold Jesus in the tomb? Why, what was it that gave Jesus the power to stand up and walk out of the tomb? It was God's promise. So he quotes David concerning um, uh, Jesus' resurrection. He quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always behind, beside me, or uh, before me. But then he says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. So in context, what he's saying is David is looking forward to God delivering him from imminent death, which David faced on a pretty regular basis before he ascended to the throne. So he's calling out to the Lord and he's saying, you won't let me be left in Hades and you won't let my body decay. You're going to save me, Lord. And that's the immediate context. That's the immediate application is that was what David was counting on. And it was true. God did deliver him repeatedly. But so when he switches to your holy one, he is considering himself, Lord, I am your holy one. I'm the one that you've blessed. I'm the one that you've been with. And so he considers himself in that role. But notice what Peter said, for David says concerning him. David picks up Psalm 16 and looks at it, and it says, at the beginning, it says it's a mitcom of David. He says, yeah, but that's talking about Jesus. David is talking about Jesus. It's not about ultimately about David. It's about Jesus. So when he looks at it and he says, yes, the immediate context was David would be delivered from death. The eternal con uh, context of it is Jesus was not delivered from death. He went to Hades, but he wasn't abandoned there. And that's that part about you won't let my soul see corruption. So he, he didn't abandon him there. He's in Hades, but he's not left. So that he rises again and his body doesn't undergo decay. Okay, so what's, what's Hades? That's what you're all thinking. I know, I can see it on your face. What is Hades? Um, parts of the church think that it's hell. Uh, but actually, when you look at, if you study out the way that Hades is, is talked about in the New Testament, Hades really is more equivalent to the Old Testament idea of Sheol. And Sheol was basically where dead people went. It was a tomb. It was in the ground. They're dead. 
End of discussion. It didn't matter if they were righteous, if they were wicked, if they were bound for heaven or hell, they went to Sheol. That was the, the place where dead people were. Hades fills that same role. It's taking a Greek term and applying it to a, uh, um, a Jewish concept. As a matter of fact, the Greeks understood it that way too. Is just Hades is the place where dead people go. So what's hell? Well, hell is almost always through the New Testament is referred to as Gehenna, an eternal fire, a burning fire. There's only one place in the New Testament that uses another term, and that's in 1 Peter where he says that um, he went to uh, Tartarus. And what Tartarus was was this Greek concept of this compartment below hell, much further down, and really bad. So it wasn't Hades. I'm sorry, not hell, but Hades. It was this compartment below Hades. So the dead people went to Hades. The really bad folks got thrown into Tartarus. So the idea was that Zeus threw titans in there because they were bad people. And, and that's not too far off from the New Testament concept because when we talk about hell, what, Peter, or what Jesus said was that hell was actually created for Satan and his angels. It was where the titans would go and suffer. But then Jesus warns us, and by the way, now people are going to go there too. So don't go to hell. Don't go to Tartarus. That, that's something to be avoided, to be shunned. And then Jude, in Jude 6, he talks about it. He doesn't use the word, but he uses the same concept. The angels who wouldn't remain in their place, God took them and put them in chains and threw them into everlasting darkness. And he's hitting at that same idea, this, this hell that they're going to face. So that's the idea is Jesus did not go to hell. Otherwise, he lied to the, the thief on the cross next to him. Because he said, this day, not eventually, but this day, you'll be with me in paradise. So where he went was he went to the place where the dead people are. And if we understand Luke 11, that, that parable of Lazarus and the rich man, then within that place where dead folks are, there's a bad place and there's a good place. And the good place is called Abraham's bosom or paradise. But it's not heaven. And it's not hell. Not yet. That's coming when Jesus comes and returns in judgment. So Jesus didn't go into hell when he went into, uh, um, when he went into Hades. Uh, he went to where dead people are, and then he says he will not let his, his body see corruption. So Jesus lays in the tomb for three days. Do you remember the story of Lazarus? How long was Lazarus in the tomb? He was in the tomb four days, and when, they said, when Jesus said, open the door, his sister says, but Lord, he's going to stink. The body has already started decaying. You don't want to open that thing up. And Jesus said, open it up anyway. So decay hasn't really started to set in quite yet, not to the noticeable point. And so Jesus' body doesn't suffer corruption. He doesn't undergo corruption. So when we talk about Jesus being crucified by these men, according to God's determined plan, what, what it turns out is that, power, that uh, death didn't have the power to keep him down. Death could not hold him in the tomb because God made him this promise. So Jesus could face the cross. He could face the suffering, the humiliation and all that with the expectant hope that what he was there, his, his physical body would not undergo decay. That his soul would not be abandoned by God, but would come back again. So even on the cross, as he's facing the mocking voices, as he's facing all of the horrible things that are happening, when God turns away from him, he yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even then, he's quoting a psalm and expecting God to, to answer. God would not leave him abandoned. 
God eventually turns back to him and raises him again from the grave. So this is the power. So uh, who did this? This Jesus whom you crucified did this. Why did he do this? Because he rose again from death. That's how he did it. This is the person that we're dealing with. Now, consider the authority of Jesus in this. In, in John chapter 10, starting in uh, verse 17, uh, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So Jesus' resurrection demonstrates not just that God accepted his sacrifice, that God was pleased with him. It demonstrates Jesus' own authority, his own power, because what he's saying in John is, I have the authority to take it up again. How many dead people have the authority to take their life up again? None that I'm aware of. Only one so far, and that was Jesus Christ. So this is the man that they're preaching to him. This is the person that they're saying, this is who you crucified. It's a man with so much authority, he could take his life back up and walk out of the tomb. That's the kind of authority that Jesus has. So he quotes that psalm, and then he goes on, and he, he's not done yet. He's not done unpacking it. Listen to where he goes. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is both dead and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and we are witnesses. So that's the picture, is he looks and he says, you guys, that psalm can't be about David. Why? Because his tomb is right over there. Jesus, uh, or, uh, uh, David's tomb was in what was called the city of David, the, the city of Zion. It's not up on Temple Mount, but it's in Jerusalem. And so that was a place they all knew of, even if that wasn't his, you know, if it was his traditional burial place or whatever. They knew that he had a tomb. They knew where his tomb was. And so Peter could point at that and say, he's dead. God may not be abandoning his soul in Hades. He may bring him back someday, but right now his body's definitely corrupted. It probably isn't there anymore. It's probably dust. It doesn't get much more corrupted than that. So what he looks is he tells the crowd, you guys, it can't be David. It can't be talking about him. And so what he tells, he calls David two important terms. The first one is patriarch. The patriarch David. This is the only place in the entire Bible David is referred to as a patriarch. Generally, when we talk about the patriarchs of the faith, we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when he looks to David and calls him a patriarch, I don't think he's putting him in that category, but what I think he's calling us to is to see David as Jesus' father. Jesus is the greater son of David, because that's what it means. Patri is father, and ark is, is source, or, or first, or original. So he is the source, the father of Jesus. It is from David that Jesus is going to come. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, he calls him a prophet, David is a prophet. Have you thought about that? His psalms are prophecies. And actually, we got this idea that, that this is where um, Peter was going to go anyway, because the other week I, we looked at verse 16. He said that the Holy Spirit spoke in the scriptures by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Doesn't that sound like a prophet? Holy Spirit speaking 
the mouth of somebody who was dead long before the events ever happened, speaking about Judas. David's a prophet. He may not fully understand what he's saying. He may not, he may not be able to get it all, but he's prophesying about the, return of, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he writes these psalms, and I can just imagine him sitting back and going, wow, that's great. I wonder, I wonder what all that means. I mean, yeah, it's, it's how I feel, but it just seems so much more magnificent. Because Peter says that the prophets searched the scriptures, trying to determine the, the time and the seasons that the person of Christ would be. I, I, I can only assume that includes David, since Peter, who wrote that epistle, called David a prophet. So David must be looking at the Psalms and going, I don't get it. This is amazing. I can't wait to find out how this pans out. So David is this prophet. He's prophesying the, the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the basis for this, why did David prophesy this? It says that God had sworn to him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. God swore an oath to David that one of his descendants would be on the throne forever. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7. That is the covenant that God made with David. David has decided... Hey, he grabs Nathan. Hey, Nathan, dude, I'm going to build God's temple. And Nathan goes, man, God has been with you in everything. Go for it. And then Nathan goes to sleep that night. And God says, Nathan, that's not how it's going to work. David's a man of blood. He can't build my temple. And so that whole 2 Samuel 7 is this great play on words on the word house. He shall not build a house for me, but I will build a house for him. A temple is the word that we would normally use. Temple could be house. It could be God's house. So he's not going to build this, this temple for me. I'm going to build his house. Not the physical structure he was residing in because he was already residing in it, but house is in his legacy, his, his family, his, um, his ongoing reign on the throne. I'm going to build his house. And the immediate context of fulfillment was Solomon. Because it's exactly what happened. Solomon built the temple. Solomon sent on David's throne. Solomon screwed up and God said, I'm not going to take the kingdom away from you, but from your sons, I'm going to rip it apart. So he set him on the throne, but not forever. It didn't quite make it. There was more to it. And so when, he, when David is looking at that, he's thinking, Solomon, yeah, definitely. But the, the, the rest of the time, people are looking at it and go, there must be more. Because by the end of First uh, and Second Chronicles, nobody's on the throne. The throne is vacant because the people have been so apostate. So did God fail? He said there would somebody be on your throne forever. No, he didn't fail because the fulfillment is Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is telling us here. So when Jesus comes in, in uh, John chapter 2, he cleans the temple. He chases all the money changers out. He cleanses the temple. John looks and says, well, they didn't understand it at the time, but then they remembered this, the saying, his zeal for his temple will, will fill him. But Jesus tells him, look, you tear this temple down, in three days I'll rise it up again. And John says explicitly he was speaking of his body. So Jesus comes. He does exactly what God said he would do. David's son built a temple. Jesus Christ is that temple. His physical body is a human nature and a divine nature in one person. There's the temple. But then also, that's not all of it. He also is going to sit on his throne forever. Death couldn't take him off the throne. Death tried to take him off the throne. But he rose again and sat down. And what we'll hear by the end of this is he has ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of glory. He will never, nobody can reach him to dethrone him now. 
This, this is the Jesus. How, who did this work? This Jesus, this person who is greater than David's son, who has done all of this, who's the total fulfillment of David's covenant, he did this. This Jesus whom you killed, and he stood up again because he has authority over death, this Jesus did that. Are you listening, men of Israel? This is the Jesus that I'm speaking of. Even, even death couldn't hold him. And so how? How could this be? I, I like that the last one came out, just one word. It reminds me of Nicodemus. Remember the story with Nicodemus? He, he's lecturing Jesus about, well, we've decided that you're a good teacher. And Jesus asks him a question. He goes, how can that be? And then finally in the end, he's like, uh. Kind of a similar thing here is I can imagine the crowd going from, well, this is a very interesting thing. We'd like to know more about this to, wait, really? And then finally, and then, well, how? I just, I thought that kind of flowed. So how, how is this that Jesus could do these things? Peter continues, he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the, fa the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So how is it that Jesus could do this? How is it that Jesus could pour out God's spirit on all people, on all flesh? Because the Father had given him, had handed him his promise. He had given to Jesus this promise. So as Jesus ascends into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of authority. He now does what he wishes, which is he fulfills the Father's promise and he pours the Holy Spirit out on his people. So how is this possible? Because this Jesus, who is so powerful, with so much authority, can ascend into heaven and send the third person of the Trinity upon whom he will. That's how he can do that. That's what's going on. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110. It's quoted a number of times in the New Testament. I heard a lecture one time on all the ways it's used. And it is amazing. It's used in various contexts in different ways, and it's something. So the way that, um, that Peter uses it is to, again, point to the authority of the resurrected Christ. He has the power to do this. He has the authority to do this. He has the ability to send the third person of the Trinity upon his church, and he chooses to do so. So he does that for you. And the threat hangs there as well. Until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the embarrassing place of the enemy is they're under my feet. I recline in luxury and I put my feet on top of my enemies. They're utterly defeated. They can't complain. They can't move because I have utterly defeated them. So that's where he takes it. This is where he goes with that is that threat again is hanging in there. In an evangelistic sermon where he should be saying, you know, life will just be great if you just come to Jesus. Instead, he says... He has triumphed, he has won, he has defeated his enemies, and a day is coming. And so this is how he ends it. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. That's his end of his sermon. That's where he lands it. All of his enemies will be subdued, whom you crucified. Yet, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved on that great and magnificent day. Men of Israel, what will you do about that? 